0: All right, everyone will start making their way back to their seats. We'll get started. There's a lot to talk about after last night. It was heartbreaking, but it was good. If you're a Duke fan, you can leave now. You're not welcome in this church today. No, I'm kidding, but we'll we'll have you. We'll let you repent later. Um, but anyway, it is good to be with you. I am John. I am the executive director of the church. Uh, Dan asked me to, to fill in for him, um, and um, yeah, he talks about this sensitive topic and then asked me to fill in <laughs> for him, so that's, uh, that's, that's all, it's all good. It's all cool, um, but anyway, we've been, we've been a study of Proverbs, those of you that have been around here. And uh, we continue to look at topics uh, that are featured prominently in the book of Proverbs. And I bet most of you have figured out what this sensitive topic is, and it's the topic of sex. And um, I don't want us to think of this necessarily as a message on sex, but rather, how do we live godly lives as the people of God, as a church, when we're in a society that is sex-obsessed. And I think it's entirely appropriate that we cover this, and it's good and necessary that we don't neglect this, quote, sensitive topic, as there are essentially three chapters of Proverbs devoted to this, or about 10% of the book of Proverbs devoted to sexual purity. Mm. And just like many topics in Proverbs, there are so many aspects of this that could be covered, so many angles, so many different ways that this could be looked at. And there are so many things that that should be said that I can say, but we just don't have time to cover all of those. So I've deliberately chosen this morning to, one, issue a warning, and then really a call to repentance and grace for those of us within the church, rather than focusing on things that are external and outside of the church walls. And so, yes, our society is full of filth and debauchery when it comes to sex. But the saddest thing to me is that that same filth and debauchery exists within the church itself. The world celebrates it. The church tries to hide it. Mm. Sexual immorality, whether through adultery or pornography, is rampant in the church in America today. And these are some t- statistics from the Barna Group and a group called Covenant Eyes that works a lot on, on um, internet um, blocking and stuff, and it's from 2020. And I would say these statistics are shocking, but they're, they're really not, if you know these things. Uh, one of 47% of families in the United States reported that pornography use is a problem in their home. So essentially, one out of two homes report that pornography use is a significant problem in their home. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by 300%. of American divorces involved one party having a, quote, obsessive interest in pornographic websites. This is one of the ones that's saddest to me. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography, and 94% of children will see pornography by the age of 14. 68% of church-going men and 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. 76% of Christian young adults aged 18 to 24 actively search for pornography. And this isn't just a problem for men. 33% of women under the age of 25 search for porn at least once a month. 87% of Christian women admit to watching pornography. 60% of women admit to having a significant trouble with lust, and 40% admit being involved in sexual sin within the last year. 57% of pastors say that pornography addiction is the most damaging issue in their congregation. And 69% of pastors say that pornography has adversely affected their church. A quote I saw when researching this said, If you think you can't fall into sexual sin, then you're godlier than David, stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. And so this is something that affects all of us. And it's true that, well, we're going to look at Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 kind of in a mishmash together, but it's true that when we read these Proverbs and think, oh, I'm not out at night visiting the, quote, strange woman or the adulteress, but the biggest problem, I think, is they're coming into our homes in front of our eyes with easier access than ever before. And families and lives are being ruined as a result of that. A month or so ago, I saw a headline that... um, A young pop star opened up about her addiction uh, to pornography. And she stated that it started when she was 11 years old, when she was first exposed to that. And the intensity and graphic nature of it grew to such a degree that she began having nightmares about what she was seeing. But she found that what it was, it had to keep growing in intensity and in nature for it to be something that interested her. And it opened her up earlier to physical acts that she said she probably would have never consented to had she known that that was not normal. And she talked about how mad she was for letting pornography destroy her brain in such a way like that. Over the last few years, I have a friend that works for a group like this that talks about things of pornography as the new drug. And sexual sin, whether adultery or pornography, does exhibit drug-like behavior. Increasing doses are needed to reach the same level of that dopamine high to get the same satisfaction from it. There's a degree of dependence that grows upon that, an increasingly risky behavior to reach that same level of thrill that was once there. Now, I'm pretty sure Solomon didn't have the internet in mind when he wrote Proverbs 5 through 7, but it definitely applies to us today. The text printed in the bulletin is Proverbs 5, but you'll also want your Bible out as well. And there's some in the back if you'd like that, if you don't have an electronic device. Uh, but we'll spend some time in pro- chapters 6 and 7, which are very parallel to Proverbs chapter 5. But before we get started, I do want to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clear teachings on what we should do and how we should live. We thank you most of all for Christ, who came and took our sin, so we no longer have to live in sin or be slaves to sin. I pray that what is said from my mouth today and that comes from here would be biblical, would be true, and be used for the benefit of the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one thing to notice is that these Proverbs, as we read them, are written as a father's instructions to his son. But I think it is completely exegetically and biblically appropriate to apply these principles to women as well, as this is a problem with the human condition. So it's not going to go just to men today. Everyone is going to be included in that. So the first thing we see in all these ver- in all these chapters is a strong exhortation. In essence, Solomon is saying to his son, like, hey, listen up to me. This is really important. Now, it certainly isn't lost that Solomon was an abysmal failure at everything that he just was going to talk to his son about. He famously had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And this was most definitely in violation of Of Deuteronomy 17, and God's command to kings that they not have multiple wives, lest their heart be turned away to other gods. And we know that this is what happened to Solomon. His wives and his concubines turned his heart to other gods, even to offer sacrifices, grotesque sacrifices to the altar of Molech. And God was determined to take the kingdom away from him, but because of God's love and because of the mercy that he had toward David, allowed Solomon to keep the kingdom. We read of that in First Kings chapter eleven. So when Solomon says in chapter five, verse one and two, "My son, be attentive to my wisdom; incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge." So Solomon certainly has wisdom from God here, but personal life wisdom experience as well that he's trying to tell his son. That's almost like, "Hey, I really messed up. Don't follow after me. Don't do what I did." That phrase, keeping discretion, has always been a bit weird to me, but the Hebrew term there is mitzmah. It essentially carries the idea of a plan or a series of steps that are to be carried out or a goal to be accomplished. So we're to guard the knowledge and the instructions that we have from God. And if our life is based on the knowledge and the instructions and the wisdom that we have from God, then to keep in step to reach that goal that we want to do, we need to listen up and heed what Solomon is saying to us. We see the same thing in chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Chapter 7, 1 through 4. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the table of your heart. We have this physical metaphor, basically do whatever it takes to keep this teaching and and, and the commandment of God in front of you. It should be so ingrained in your heart and in your mind and your thoughts that it's as if it's tied around your neck. It will guide you, your, your last thought at night when you go to sleep. The first thought that you have in the morning should be of the law and the wisdom of God. Don't for a second let this wisdom and this teaching and this knowledge get away from you. But look at verse 23 in chapter 6. Too often we see, especially in today's age, we see commandments as, as restrictive only. It's keeping us from finding our true selves or finding our true joy. This tells us the opposite that God's commandments are what will safely guide us through life, through this dark world, and correction and discipline from God are what keep us on that path to life. Now, a question. What is viewed as the ultimate path to satisfaction and fulfillment by society today? It's complete sexual freedom. No boundaries, no limits, no one to tell me what I should do, other than what I want to do that makes me feel good about myself. Now, I can't speak for everyone in society at large, but I know people, and many of you do as well, and have seen and heard stories that the opposite is true. There wasn't the joy that was promised from that. Maybe there was for a short period of time, but then came the emptiness, the despair, the feeling of worthlessness, trying to find a way out, but not knowing how the commandments and the wisdom of God lead to life. They lead to an abundant life. We're not advocating here this morning a prudish anti-sex view. We're advocating a view of sex that is positive and wonderful, that it was created by God to be enjoyed within the limits set by God. That is why we're talking about it this morning, to listen to the warnings so that life and sex may both be enjoyed fully. Secondly, in all three of these chapters, we see the seductiveness of the experience. Chapter 5, verse 3, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress, do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. Chapter 7, she seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight, our, <coughs> delight ourselves with love. And there's a reason that sexual sin is so tempting. It seems so good; it tempts us at the very physiological level at which we were created by God. It may seem to offer companionship when we're lonely. It reminds me of Adam and Eve and the serpent in the Garden of Eden when they're standing there and they're, they're pondering the fruit that they were told that they shouldn't eat. They could eat of everything else, but of the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were not to eat of that. And and they were probably looking at this, thinking. Well, well, fruit is good. We eat other fruit. This fruit in particular looks really good, but we're not supposed to. And then the serpent offers the familiar line that is likely part of the rationale for nearly every sin that has been committed. Did God really say? And it puts that question in there, is, did, is God withholding something from me that's actually good for me? And then those words start to go through our mind and we start to rationalize what we want to do. Well, it's just this once. No one will know about it. It's not hurting anyone. In fact, doing this may may keep me more happily married. God wouldn't have made something so pleasurable and so enticing if he didn't want me to enjoy it. Well, they're really struggling. I'm actually doing the right thing by sleeping with them because maybe I'm helping them. I might hurt them more if I say no. The adulteress from chapter 7 makes it sound like it might even be a holy thing, that this is good before God. She's, She's given her sacrifices and she's paid her vows. Doesn't God want me to delight in his creation? By far, the best way to avoid temptation is to not even come near it. Don't allow yourself to even get close to it. And if you're saying it won't happen to me, you're probably the one most likely to fall into it because temptation is all around and affecting us whether we realize it or not. So take whatever steps you need to even avoid the temptation that looks so pleasant and the time may even look so innocent. Third, I want us to see the speed and the depth of the consequence. In chapter 5, starting in verse 4, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. What was described as lips dripping honey has now turned into the bitter taste of wormwood, bitter and moderately poisonous. Likely not a physical death leading to this, but a path to ruin and loss coming from giving in to that temptation. Now, I'm not going to be prescriptive this morning and and give you the, the tips and tricks and the suggestions and all the things you need to do to avoid temptation. Books have been written about this. Websites have all sorts of these things about how to guard yourself online and as well as in your personal interactions. But I will say this. Each of us know when and where and how we are tempted. Whether this is something you're in the middle of struggling with right now or someday you will struggle with this. Every one of us in in this room will deal with this temptation. Verse 8 says it quite plainly. Keep your way far from her, him, or it, and do not go near the door of their house. And then look at chapter 6, verses 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Chapter 7, verse 22. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Of course, the answer of can you take fire to your chest or go upon hot coals is you will get burned, unless you're a magician. (laughs) I don't think there's a more fitting thing than what is just said in verses 32 and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He or she who does it destroys themselves. Wounds and dishonor and disgrace will not be wiped away. Sexual sin is one that people seem to carry with them throughout their entire lives, no matter when it happened. What looked fun and maybe harmless can take you further than you wanted to go and potentially destroy your family, your work, your reputation, and everything about you. But in speaking of the consequences of sexual temptation... I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the grace of God at the same time. All of us, prior to salvation, by grace through faith in Christ were dead. We were slaves to sin. Nothing we did measured up to the righteousness of God. And the fact of it may be that some of you here may have a past that you wish you desperately could go back and change. And you know that you can't go back in time and change that. But what I would say is your story is a testimony to the grace of God. A testimony to Christ who came as the Son of God to take your sins upon Himself and pay for them past, present, and future. So don't continue to live in that guilt and shame because Christ has already taken all of that upon Himself for you. Many times the earthly consequences can't be undone. But Christ has set you free from the emotional baggage that we all tend to want to carry with us. You are now a testimony of His grace, and even your past mistakes can be used in a way to help others who may be struggling in the same thing, to help free them from their sin, to help them find a way out of their struggles. To those who are believers who are struggling with sin right now, stop. Just stop. It's as simple as that. Look to Christ in faith and repent. We don't have altar calls here at the church, but rather we close each service with communion. And I don't think there's a better time to look to Christ and repent than when we stop and we remember what Christ has done for us. And at that moment, committing ourselves to sexual purity in the future. Stop fighting the guilt and shame. Let go of that and look to Christ. Maybe help is needed, and it oftentimes is with things like this. Get that help, whatever it takes, whether it's a friend, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a professional counselor, whatever it takes, find and get the help that you need and repent before that path of sin leads you to further destruction. Fourth, I want us to look at the beauty of marriage. Chapter 5, verses, starting verse 15, drink water from your own cistern Marriage between a man and a woman is God's chosen way to satisfy sexual desires. And Solomon uses quite a bit of poetic language to contrast the beauty of a sexual relationship with one's spouse versus the ruin and commonality of an adulterous relationship. We won't break down all the metaphors, but specifically the freshness of water from one's own well versus the questionable water from a shared common source. And it's clear that there can exist a mutually satisfying relationship that just transcends the physical. It's a relationship that both husband and wife should enjoy and partake in together. One commentator states, the Hebrew imagery here means that the wife is to be a source of true pleasure, not just an everyday instrument of physical satisfaction. Sex and the enjoyment of marriage thereof is a part of it as we see here in Proverbs, but it is not the totality of marriage. Now, I do want to make a comment to those that are here that are, either, that are single, either by choice, by age, or by circumstance. And this can be one of the most difficult aspects to deal with when there is a longing for a relationship and a longing for a sexual relationship. But it's important to remember how many times throughout Proverbs we see the word blessed, specifically in regard to the one who gains wisdom and follow the laws and the plans of God. And too often we reduce that word blessed when we go to a more modern translation as just translating it as happy. Well, the word there meaning blessed, ashri, means much more than just being happy, the emotion of happy. And we really do it at disservice. service. Its semantic sense carries more of a whole life aspect to it that extends beyond just the emotion. One lexicon described it as being highly favored or fortunate by divine grace, highly favored or fortunate by divine grace. And while you may look around and long for what others have, there is still only one thing that satisfies all of us here, whether married or unmarried, and that is God himself. So stay true to the wisdom of God during this stage of your life, and you will find yourself being blessed or being highly favored in all of your life by divine grace. God has promised to bless, and he will bless those that follow after him. I don't know what that blessing may look like in your life right now, but I do believe and trust that God is always faithful to his word. And then finally, the foolishness of sexual sin. And we're in uh, chapter 5, verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Solomon asked what this point, based on his teaching, seems to be a rhetorical question of why would you be intoxicated with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? But I'm afraid that's not really a rhetorical question for us today. I want that to be an actual question. Why would we follow after that and chase after that? Why, as a church, do we allow ourselves to be intoxicated with lust and we embrace pornography or sexual relationships outside of marriage? We know the consequences. We have a God-given way of satisfying those desires in marriage. So why does the church continue to give in to sexual sin especially the sin and the blight of pornography that exists in the church. We then see the sobering reality that all of our ways are before the Lord. He ponders, or he searches and examines, all of our paths. What we think we do in secret isn't secret. What's hidden in our mind isn't hidden from God. The God we have come here and we worship today is the God who saw everything we did last week. And then the final reminder that holds so true for things as addictive as sexual sins. They ensnare us and they trap us in sin. Our brains become so reconditioned that the things that we once would have run away from and stayed away from are things that are bragging for more and more of that, just like a drug. Ultimately, the end of that path for believers is not spiritual death. Because as believers, we won't face spiritual death again. But it will lead to spiritual uselessness. You may get away with it for a time, and no one will know. But you cannot serve God and serve lust and sex and pornography. And the odds there are that because of continuing in a sexual sin, you will be led astray in your love for God. We serve a gracious and a loving God one who is long-suffering with us and with our many failings. It is not the desire of God that He withhold or He keeps anything away from us that is good, but His desire is to give us that which is truly good. To those of you who are here and are living well and are on the right path, hear the warning from, from Proverbs today. Stay far away from sexual temptation. Don't go anywhere near it. To believers who are struggling with sexual sin... We've already had an assurance of pardon, but I want you to repent and hear another assurance of pardon from 1 John 1, 1.9 today. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So today, confess your sins. Repent and turn back to Christ, the one who loved you, And took those very sins that you're committing right now upon himself so that you don't have to live in sin any longer. Commit yourself again to following after wisdom and after the righteousness of God. And seek help if you need it. Fight that battle with someone. Don't fight that battle alone. As we close, I wanted to read one final admonition from Proverbs 8, 10 through 11. And this is from a man who had immense wealth. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you desire cannot compare with her. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you first loved us. There is nothing worthy about us that you should desire anything or any part of us. But when we were dead in our sins, you sought us. You redeemed us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you've given us the Holy Spirit as a seal to live within us forever, to reassure us that we are yours, and that nothing on this earth can separate us from your love. I pray now here for Central Hope Church. I pray for those who are fighting and struggling in sexual sins, that they would repent and turn to you, and once again find you to be the source of all true joy. I pray for marriages that are struggling because of sin. I pray and ask for the healing and restoration process to begin. I pray that you would protect our church from the evil one and the alluring temptations that are placed before us each day. May we believe the gospel, that you alone are good, and that through Christ you have made us worthy and have set us free from being slaves to sin. I pray that as we get ready to approach the communion table, that we would remember, that we would repent, and that we would return to you as we visibly celebrate what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray.